Welcome to Conversations Over Coffee, where we're brewing inspiring discussions on the Philippine startup ecosystem with those who are making things happen. I'm your host, Bitsantas from Kickstart Ventures. Join me in every episode as we sit down with key figures in the startup community as we explore their successes and challenges and how we can work together to shape the future. Hello, welcome, Jackie, to Conversations Over Coffee. Hey, Bit. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So, about your role in Kickstart, what are your main responsibilities and what do you do typically day-to-day? I guess a bit of a background to my position. I am currently Kickstart's legal director, but I am also a member of the investment team. So, my, my main role is that I am in charge of Kickstart's, as the name suggests, legal and compliance. So, all things legal flow through me. In terms of the investment side... That would entail being on top of deal documentation. So if we are closing a deal, that's to make sure that all our documents are in order, all our negotiated points are in the documents, and that we close and wire on time. And that also includes doing diligence work, doing the legal diligence when we're looking into a company. So looking at the contracts, looking at the structure, mapping out risks as to what would need to be fixed or addressed uh, and see whether those goes or no goes. So that's my role on the investment side, on more of the admin and portfolio side. So sometimes I'll join you a bit, checking up on our portfolio companies if they have certain legal questions or specific legal concerns, Philippine-related, sometimes either it could be investment-related, they can come to me. But overall admin, also part of uh, handling compliance, uh, for the funds that we manage. So it's talking to service providers uh, with respect to making sure that we're on top of filings, regulatory filings, making sure our board meetings are done in order, um, and also reviewing any third-party contracts that we might have. Exciting stuff. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't even include the other investment stuff that I do, I guess, yeah. which is like what other investment team members do. It's like... Uh, Scoping deals, uh, doing IMs, and being part of the yeah. deal team. No, no shortage of stuff to do, huh? No shortage, no shortage <laughs> at all. So, prior to joining Kickstart, you were a practicing lawyer, right? So, how did you transition from practicing law to working at a, a VC firm, right? And how did you end up working with us? Well, as you mentioned, I was, you know, practicing law. I was working for the mid-sized law firms here. I started out at one of the top-tier corporate uh, law firms uh, here in the Philippines. I moved into another mid-sized uh, law firm uh, that was specializing. Uh, it was general general practice, but I was specializing mostly in corporate and labor. And at some point, I knew I didn't want to just keep doing that. Like, I didn't want to do... There was some legal work that I wanted to do more of, and there was some that I didn't want to do any more of. Um, but I, I've always been interested more in the corporate side of things. And... You know, whenever I was like doing like corporate legal work and, you know, you're, you're seeing all these deal documents, right? Then you see like, oh, I, I was more interested on the thought process as to like why the deal was being done or like what was the decision to, let's say, enter into this uh, M&A agreement, right? Like how did they arrive at that point and think that this was a good purchase or like this was a good acquisition? And so I wanted to be more involved not only on the legal side of things, but on the business side of things. And so I thought like, okay, like how do I transition out of this? Maybe the best way to do that was 
to get an MBA, given that, you know, like lawyer background, I didn't want to be put in a box of just having a legal background. So took up my MBA, went abroad for that, came back, and I was trying to you know, look look for a job here. Someone connected me to Minette, had a really good conversation to Minette with Minette, and Minette was gracious enough to be open to the idea to allowing me to do non-legal related stuff. And so, you know, to get more involved in the investment side of things. And she brought me in, um, Dan and Joanne took me in as well. Joanne mentored me as to how to do like valuations, learned that side of the business, uh, learned the finance aspect, learned the commercial stuff as well. And yeah, five years later, still here. I just realized, so you joined Kickstart literally a month before I did. Yeah. And I just realized I, I've never asked you the story of how you how you kind of ended up here. So that's that's cool. Yeah, I mean, I guess now thinking about it, in the course of doing business, of running a business, there's, again, like there's no shortage of legal concerns for which you would need to kind of lean on a legal expert, a lawyer. But typically the interactions of business owners and business leaders with lawyers is just kind of on the execution part, right? Like all the decisions had been made and you're just asking, how do I actually do this? Yeah. Yeah. So the way I felt at the time when I was working as a lawyer, it, you're just, you're pretty much just fine tuning everything or just producing like the final document as to what everyone has decided. And then you're just tinkering with it, like here and there, like, oh, put this in, put this negotiation point in. And then like, we just finesse the language pretty much. Of course, we give advice. As well as like, oh, you can't put that because let's say it's you know, not market standard or it's not legal. Like you cannot say this or, you know. I suppose just, it would be typically just within the context of uh, of like legal practices and, and, and yeah, like what you guys see as lawyers, but not necessarily as business advisors in general. Yeah. I mean, at most we could probably flag risks at the diligence report, right? But. At the end of the day, the decision is still coming from, let's say, the client or the ones uh, or, or management or, you know. So there seems to be a, a fairly healthy level of understanding of how to start a business in the Philippines, how to run a business in the Philippines. You know, I think the stats would show that there's a very healthy long tail of SMEs. Entrepreneurship has always been part of local culture. But what startups have to consider, startups as a specific kind of business, what they have to consider and how they should structure themselves, how to operate, uh, how to fundraise isn't as well understood. So, you know, as the resident legal expert and a key member of the Kickstart um, investment team, like, what do you think more people in the local startup community need to know more about? Great question, but I think like one thing that I believe should that startup founders should try to train themselves up more on or try to be, get themselves more familiar on or with respect or with the different ways in which you can raise capital. I mean, not everyone goes through like the VC track, so to speak, right? Like where you're going through a fund fundraising after fundraising. And it's only now that we start to see companies here in the Philippines get investor money and get venture capital money, right? Typically, like traditionally, like if you had a business back then that probably had to be bootstrapped or you had few investors, friends and family, or you were taking out a loan from a bank, right? At some point. Uh, and it's only now that, okay, I have this business idea. I want to raise capital or I have a product. 
I want to test it out of the market. I need money to do it, right? And it's only now that we're starting to see founders who are thinking this way. And of course, with that comes the legal side of it. So, okay, like I want to raise capital. Like, how am I going to raise this capital? Like, what kind of investment am I getting? And when you're in, I guess, a startup slash VC land, initially, the first way you're going to make money if you're early stages, you're going to probably get your safe investment, simple agreement for future equity, which is typically I give you money. And at some point, if you raise an equity round or a qualified equity financing round, that'll convert uh, what I give you into equity shares into your company, right? But then understanding like, the legal definitions behind the safe because your investor is going to convert into shares at a future period based on a certain conversion formula. And that's all in the document, right? And these are things founders should try to practice or learn a bit more, I guess not learn a bit more, but be more aware of as to like how that will affect their cap table moving forward. So the safe note, Right, that's it's effectively a flavor of convertible note, right? Yes. So the only difference is that this is non-interest bearing. So uh, nowadays we'll mostly see a convertible note for bridge rounds. For let's say your let's say after your Series A, you need a little bit more runway, but you're not quite there at your Series B stage yet. Yet, so you probably need a little bit more fuel to get to Series B. So then that's when we'll probably see. A convertible note, and that would probably have an interest attached to it. So when I first joined Kickstart five years ago, a month after you had joined, although I had been coming from another local tech company, so I had like some idea of how startups operated, um, the fundraising side wasn't so familiar with, to me, right? And when I came in, this concept of convertible notes, of, of safe notes or kiss notes and all those different flavors of it wasn't so familiar to me, right? So in my head, when someone raised funds, it was essentially for equity, right? So in what scenarios is it more appropriate to raise funds on a note rather than going directly to equity? Well, similar to you, but even though I did come from a legal background, I was not exposed to a lot of all these like investment documents because at the time, I mean, there really wasn't that much in that space going on around here. So it was, it was also like eye-opening to me. But like what we've seen lately is like, Typically, a safe will happen at your very early stages of your fundraise, your fundraising journey. So if you're like pre-seed um, or you have, I guess, uh, a deck and a dream, you're probably going to start asking maybe for a safe or you're just like starting to build out your product. You have your MVP out, um, but you want to test it out, put it out to market. Then you're getting safes because typically check sizes here are a bit smaller and in a way, they operate faster because it's, you know, it's like, a, as the name suggests, it's a simple agreement where, you know, I give you some money at some future point. If you raise a financing round, then it'll convert at a certain discount or valuation cap. So you prioritize speed and efficiency to get this capital. So founders look for that. And you know, investors are aware of the risk of what the safe is because, number one, it's not interest bearing and your only hope is that at some point you you grow enough that you need an equity round, right? Convertible notes, as I mentioned earlier, 
I mean, you can still see it in the early stages, but you'll see forms of it in different stages. It'll run the gamut of, from seed to series C. These are typically like you're doing your bridge financing. So you're not quite on the next stage yet, but then you need a little bit more fuel. You need a little bit more runway. You're going to do like a bridge note. And then equity round is uh, your formal financing round. So when you do your series seed round, your series A round, and then from there, you're, you're actually investing into equity into the company, right? Um, and then, of course, you, there are pros and cons uh, with each type of uh, flavor that you get. Yeah. And as I understand, like the one of the key benefits of taking the note route is is speed, right? It's much faster to execute. Um, it's simpler. As, as we well know, like there, especially when you have multiple investors coming in, even on, on, on a note, there's a lot of coordination being done. But strictly speaking, a note is really just a bilateral agreement, right? It's not... So that also kind of helps speed things along, right? There's no equity being exchanged. There's also less regulatory uh, considerations in, in executing, right? So also that's why typically that's what the earlier stages kind of prefer because you really try to prioritize for speed. Yeah, I mean, like as, as you touched upon, um, like regu- regulatory aspects. So if you're getting on equity shareholders, right, you have to report that to let's say the SEC or the governing body that uh, is regulating uh, shareholders, right? So if here in the Philippines you'd have to update your GIS, um, and then you know you you need to have your uh, share purchase agreement or share subscription agreement to to document that, right? Um, and then attached to that are rights of shareholders already. So if you do get into an equity agreement, then you effectively have a shareholder into your company and then you're starting to negotiate other rights. So that also delays or makes the process much longer uh, as compared to like, I, I issue you the safe, um, I get you the money on like, you know, I'll get you the money on Friday and then that's it, right? And then we wait. Yeah. So like one of the benefits of it being so quick to execute, I guess like a big part of me, of how it is fast is because you you essentially you push things down the road, right? You push the granting of equity and the granting of rights that are tied to that equity um, to a later date. But then that can also introduce some complexity because you have to consider how everything converts to equity in the future when between now and then you might have gotten you you might have closed more notes. You might be um, taking on new equity investment. How everyone's stakes kind of, you know, pan out could get more complex, right? So how should founders be thinking about that? Great question, because it's also something that you know, that we always like when we look at an investment and then we do see that there are still unconverted notes or safes. So that's something that we have to calculate. So if we put in this much money, and then these note holders are going to convert. Like, what does it do? Uh, like, how how much does that dilute the founders? And and I think this is like something that founders should always keep an eye on um, or be aware of because at the end of the day, they're the ones that are most affected by it uh, because it's you know it's they're the ones that get diluted, right? Because by taking on notes, and when you take on a, a safe or a convertible note, it's either you get a discount on the next round price, 
or it's at a valuation cap. And sometimes, you know, like you set the valuation cap too low. And so because it's at so low and then your valuation at the equity round is, you know, the difference is quite large. Those note holders end up getting way much more of the company because they they lucked out on the valuation cap, right? Founders are not only get, getting diluted on the equity round, but they're getting that massive dilution on the notes or the safes. Uh, so it's it essentially operates as a dilution bomb. So it's, like, it's, it's like a ticking time bomb, right? Like you, you push it down and then like when it happens, it explodes and then you're just like watered down. So founders have to, I guess, try to game out or at least when they're scenario planning their investment horizon or their fundraising, understanding like, okay, if I raise this much in notes and I raise at this amount in the future, like this will convert at this amount, like how much will I be diluted for, right? And then if I am diluted this much, will I be able to negotiate for some ESOP to top us up? And, you know, investors are also aware of that, that sometimes ESOP does have to be issued to, to keep the founders in and motivated in the company. Carrying on too many notes with a severe potential dilution bomb does make it more difficult or unattractive for future investors. Because like if I'm an investor and coming in and I see like founder got a series A with just 20% left of the company, like and he needs to go through series B and series C. Like like what other motivation will the founder have if he's already down to 20% at the series A, right? Right. So founders should always be thinking about effectively how their cap table will will look like at every stage of their company, right? Because you know, there's been many a time where we're looking at a promising company, but when we look into their cap table, it's a bit messy, right? And that can be that can complicate things in in many ways. Uh, but not just that, right? So even you know, we also look at the corporate structure, like essentially how the business is built in every kind of way, from the cap table to corp to the corporate structure. It doesn't only imply certain complications in terms of operations and regulations, but also there's some implications on fundraising, right? So what do you think founders should be considering in terms of structuring their businesses? I think founders should try to be aware that, number one, uh, fundraising, like it's a marathon, right? It's not a sprint. So coming to have a healthy understanding that if you are on this treadmill or if you are on this path and you know some companies aren't on this VC path like some people some companies are just self-sustaining or will take out loans or and you know grow from there right but some companies like if they want to grow and scale like they they do choose to get on this path where they seek uh, investor capital and once they do that they have to understand that it will take multiple funding rounds to get from your $1 million business to a $10 million business. And then from a $10 million business, how do we take it to a $100 million business? From a $100 million business, how do you take that to a billion dollar business? And at each of those stages, you're probably raising X amount of money. And at each of those stages, as a founder, you're giving up, let's say, at start, maybe 20% of your company, 20% each time, right? You're being diluted 20% each time. Maybe later on, it's probably a little less depending on how much, on how well the company is doing. 
or it might be even more depending on how much how bad the company is doing at that time so it's 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 having a healthy understanding of at each of these stages i will be diluted um so how can i make sure that at the end of this journey like at each dilution stage like i still have a healthy amount of equity in the game and healthy in the sense that it's balanced with investor equity or your other shareholders like your your employees the esop plan and the founders right so how do we get to that level where i'm like as a founder let's say at i don't know series a maybe at 65% um and then series b like i dilute myself 20% more and it's understanding that okay and at the, each of these stages things could happen like at some point what if i need a bridge round what if i need to raise notes before that next equity round and because of that that's like i could take a discount so that can mean further dilution so it's being able to understand your cap table and the effect it has on you on your current investors and on your future investors so it's it's a bit of excel <laughs> i guess at this point it's it's a bit of excel and a bit of understanding like definitions and language around like conversion formulas in the document okay so at the point that a founder has now determined okay i need to fundraise and hopefully he or she has already kind of laid out their long-term plan and roadmap and what milestones they want to set and how they want to effectively properly incentivize all stakeholders moving forward through um, making sure everyone has an appropriate level of skin in the game at every stage. What are some things you think they should be considering to make sure that they are fundraising ready, that they are in a, in a state that is ready to take on uh, investors and shareholders? I think one of the considerations founders should make in getting their entity ready for investment, aside from like making sure that the cap table is clean or, you know, like as, as you mentioned, game planning that everyone has skin in the game, right? And the pro everyone has an appropriate, appropriate amount of equity. It's also understanding like how to set up the corporate structure itself, right? Uh, whether you're going to have a holding entity outside of uh, where you're operating at or whether your opco would also be where the investment is coming into. So one of the considerations startup founders should uh, make uh, once that they've determined like, okay, like this is how our cap table is going to look. It's going to look clean. So time to get investment, right? And I think one of the considerations is um, setting up the proper corporate structure for it. So let's say you are an entity that plans to operate regionally, right? So in those cases, it might make sense to set up a holding entity and then have different subsidiaries depending on the regions that you are operating in. And of course, it doesn't mean that I know, like from the get-go, like, okay, I'm starting out my company, but my plans for the future is I want to go regional, right? So I should have a hold co-entity at the very start um, because that that entails cost, right? And no one wants to be spending for something that they might not necessarily need in the future. So it, like you can start out in the country where you are operating in at the moment 
and then at the future then you can start to figure out okay if i want to grow expand regionally like my next market is let's say indonesia like does it make sense to put up an office there another consideration is where am i getting investment money from am i getting regional investors am i getting investors from the us or are most of my investors uh based uh in the philippines like how comfortable are they with mm-hmm. investing into a local entity given let's say my investor is not familiar so much with the regulatory framework in the company that i'm operating in so does that mean that uh there should be an entity offshore maybe uh maybe not right but those are the things that as you grow and as you expand um and as you take external capital from regional or global players will also help determine like how you would want to set up your corporate structure i think you know in preparation for this conversation we were thinking about you know what the things we wanted to cover and talk about and um you know as we kind of alluded to at the beginning there's really no shortage of things we could talk about like there's no there's no end of complexity or like level of simplicity right there's just that whole range of options that startups can explore in, in in growing their businesses and all of them have you know different considerations different implications um, many of which are legal in nature i hope our audience has gotten um, a bit of a firmer grasp of the things that they should be thinking about so with that jackie before we end things um, I mean, especially since you sit with the investment team for for you know most of your time here at Kickstart, um, you know again we we at Kickstart operate in um, ideas and concepts of the future. Um, what's one idea or concept of of the future that you've seen recently that has particularly caught your uh, imagination? I'm actually still very interested in the e-commerce space actually and where it is going i mean we've seen probably like the first wave of uh like lazada shopee lazora where you have your big marketplaces but we're starting to shift into more niche brands um or niche uh e-commerce retail you have like you know guys like edamama pickup coffee and seeing how these business models are evolving from let's say just purely online like and then suddenly they're like starting to be more omnichannel and you're starting to see growth in um like other local retail concepts not just here but regionally right like you have love bonito that came out of singapore so you're seeing this d2c wave in southeast asia and it would be interesting to see how they turn out like are they going to turn out like some d2c players like in the us that you know like had massive rise but then they started to just like dip uh after a certain period of time like so interesting how they are able to address that problem and how to get goods to a wider audience given that the region itself is just so spread out right like the philippines alone is like 7000 islands right like if i am a retail player that wants to expand regionally like how do i build up my logistics my supply chain and like all the thought process that goes into that to be able to serve like a customer 
in Hong Kong, in Singapore, um, or even as far as Europe and the U.S. So yeah, I think I think that for me is has always been an interesting space, and continues to be. All right, thank you very much, Jackie. It was great being able to spend some time with you, pick your brain on these things. Thanks, Bit. Happy to be here. <laughs> I, I apologize for the complexity <laughs> and the very rather verbose uh, uh, talking points. <laughs> that is the nature of our business. I'll see you around. Thanks, Bit. Thanks for joining us. Follow Kickstart Ventures on Facebook and LinkedIn to know who we're featuring next.